God, we, we acknowledge your presence with us here this morning. We acknowledge our great need for you. Um, we're going to have some conversations about doing marriage well, doing our relationships well, uh, looking at our own perspective, but ultimately asking you to give us the knowledge and the wisdom that we need. Um, we thank you that you are faithful to do this, that even in the midst of our weakness, you are made, your strength is made obvious. Um, so give us open hearts to hear it and receive from you. In Christ's name, amen. Man. How is everybody today? Good? Alive? I get well. I guess the Auburn fans team didn't win last night. And you know, I've like I grew up in Louisiana, so LSU is one of my teams. So apologies for that. Let's uh, let's review where we are so far. The whole topic of this is the narrative of marriage, looking at the stories that we're living out in the way that we live our married lives. And the first day we talked about the story of us taking a chance to look back and say, where are we? How did we get here? <clears throat> What's been our story up to this point? And what kind of story are we telling in our married lives right now? Do we like that story? <coughs> are we okay with that story? Is it a good story? So that was the first week. And the second week, talking about the story of relationship in general. How are we supposed to do this? What makes for <clears throat> excuse me, a good, healthy, life-giving marriage? And if you recall, we also looked at those nine predictors of divorce from John Gottman, which is the what not to do part of the talk. So don't focus on that. And then looking at what makes for happy, stable relationships as well. So where do we come from? Where are we now? How do we do this? And now we're going on to the third part, <clears throat> the next part of the story, which is about conflict. And the, the title for this is the story that no one wants to tell. And there's going to be an adaptation of the title in a second. But, but I would throw out the question, why do people not like conflict? I know that sounds like a stupid question, but what is it about conflict that scares people off and makes them want to run from it? Why are we afraid? It's extremely uncomfortable, right? So it causes anxiety inside of us. There's a physiological arousal of the systems that puts us on edge. So, yeah, there's nothing that's pleasant about it, which is, it seems obvious, but it's a great point. Why would I step into something that's not going to feel good? Why else do we avoid it? Maybe the anticipation of a lack of solution or no common ground, eventual. There's not going to be one. Yeah, that's, an, that's another great point. You know what? We're going to step into this and we're going to do it and, and nothing is going to get resolved. It's not going to work. We're not going to find the common ground. There's no resolution, so better just to avoid it. Mm -hmm. Common reason? Somebody over here was... It's acknowledging something that you'd rather not have in life. Yeah, and this is a fantastic point. Um, if you do the conflict, you've got to look internally and say, wow, this is, this is there in me, this is there in us. I don't like seeing that. If I can sweep it under the carpet, avoid it, then maybe I don't have to face that tough thing. Great point. Other ones that you think get in the way. You might lose. That's right. Uh, th there is a crucial element of pride. I've got to get my glasses. I forgot I was an old man this morning. <laughs> um, there's certainly an element of pride in all of this, right? I might lose. The best way not to lose is don't come to the negotiating table. Nothing changes. But if you come to the table, you might lose. That's a great point. Other things that keep us avoiding conflict. Damaging your relationships. Yeah. Yeah, you know, this kind of goes hand in hand with the point over here. Number one, I don't want to hurt my spouse. Uh, I don't want to cause damage to the relationship. You probably have memories of having arguments, 
or we can call them discussions, about things before, maybe the same topic, and you remember how there was a coldness in the air for two days afterwards, or you're having a good day and this ruined the rest of the day for you, I don't want to do that damage. If there's potential damage, let me just sidestep it. These are great. Any others that you think might be there to avoid it? Yeah, it's a fantastic point. And we're, we're going to talk about, maybe not addiction per se, but those kind of ideas actually next week. A lot of times there may be something that you know is not right inside of you and a question of personal integrity that is off. Who wants to have that exposed? Or maybe if it is an addiction or something else that's going on, if I come to the table, it's bound to come out. Or if it doesn't come out, I'm in this conversation trying to hide this and I know the conversation is not going to go somewhere. It's another fantastic point. There may be something inside of me that I know needs to be dealt with, but I'm not willing to go there yet. Uh, this might have kind of been covered, but we just don't know how to do it. Yes. We, we don't know how to, there's an issue, we know it's there, we just don't know how to go about peacefully resolving it. It's another great one. It, it's, it's like you read my notes, you're giving all my points, which is exactly what I would hope for. Yeah, it's a feeling of incompetence. I, I would like to do something about this. I have no idea what to do. So why go into the battle knowing the strategies that I've used before have been ineffective, have caused damage, have been hurtful? So better just to step back and, and, and not go there at all. You may have named them. Any other ones you're thinking of randomly? That may be all that I had on my list. All right, here's one or two more. Eventually, with all this, there's a sense of resignation and hopelessness. We've tried this. It's not going to get us anywhere. Why bother? Okay. And if there's an underlying thing behind all of these, it's fear. Right? I'm ruled by fear. Even though we know God doesn't give us the spirit of fear, but of power of love and of sound mind, the fear can be overwhelming and keep us from where we need to be. So this leads to the second point of this. If this was a cheesy self-help talk, this is where I would tell you, but there is opportunity right, within our conflicts, that your job is to get in there and fight it out and find that gold nugget within all of this, right? Or I would say, did you know that the Chinese characters that mean crisis actually stand for dangerous opportunity? So there's an opportunity here. And you'd all stand up and cheer and all that kind of stuff. You know, I was thinking, imagine if you were talking to your financial advisor. I've got a dangerous opportunity for you. Sign me up. You might retire as a millionaire, or you may not. Uh, so this idea of the dangerous opportunity, um, there's truth in this, but we're missing the point that there's a tremendous amount of fear in this. And I'm going to illustrate this by showing you a little video clip here, which some of you have seen before, and maybe some of you have not. And hopefully, I've got it in the right spot. <clears throat> And hopefully you can hear this. So this is a scene from Talladega Nights. It's an indie film, won a few Oscars. Um, uh, if you don't know the story, this is Ricky Bobby. Yes, he's got two first names. And he is a famous NASCAR driver who's lost his mojo and he can't drive fast anymore. So this is his alcoholic father who's now come back on the scene to try to give him advice about how to overcome his fear and get him back into the car. So as you watch this, 
the car, getting into that car represents going into the conflict that you have in your marriage. And what's inside the car often represents how you see your spouse at that time. And hopefully I've got the volume on this. Okay. I trapped it. Been keeping it in my bathroom at the motel, feeding it old pizza. Now back in that car, you hear me? No, I'm not getting in that car. Hey, listen. If you're calm, that wondrous big cat will be calm too. But if you're scared... That beautiful death machine will do what God made it to do. Namely, eat you with a smile on its face. God, you just follow me wherever I go. <laughs> looking at you. So you're saying if I just calm down, the cougar will be okay? You got it. Oh, damn it. Okay. Go on, son. You can do it. Come on. Oh, come on. That's it. <laughs> no sudden move. Like, is this too fast? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Stop there on it. Sorry, the audio wasn't. Could y'all hear that sort of anyway? All right. Uh, we're very intellectual here today, so you can you can be impressed. Um, <clears throat> so it's comical scene. I show that to represent this idea that it is actually extremely scary to go into conflict. Right. So the first point we're trying to remember is I need to have compassion with myself as I'm trying to do this, and compassion with my partner. Now, now, I use that clip in, a, in some other talks as well to represent what happens in men. There's something called diffuse physiological arousal, where in the midst of a conflict, a man gets so worked up that, that literally his brain stops functioning in the same way that it might. And, and women have a higher threshold, a higher tolerance for that. So they can get in and argue, but the man just gets overwhelmed, and that's why he backs out of the conversation a lot of times until he calms himself down. If you don't know that, you don't have compassion. So you can think of your partner, when you're trying to engage in a conflict discussion, it's like they're looking at that cougar inside the car. It scares them to death. And there's some sense like, I've, I've got to get back in the car. I've got to get return to my life. We need to move forward. But I am scared to death. So when I come to a conversation and I'm frustrated, I'm annoyed with you, I'm not thinking of where you're coming from, I'm basically saying, you should just get in the car and don't worry about the cougar. It's not going to happen. But if I understand how scary this is for you, you understand how scary it is for me, we have a chance to go into the conversation with compassion and possibly get somewhere. Okay, so remember, the cougar, this is what it feels like. How do we have compassion when we get there? So here's the reframe. If it's scary, if it's much easier to avoid, if no one wants to go into conflict, it's easy to just stay on that same course. But what we're trying to do instead is this. Learn how to tell a good story within the conflict. Right? Um, if we had a conflict-free life, the story would be simple. But it's not simple. There is going to be conflict. How do we do it well? We need to be good storytellers in the midst of the conflicts that we experience. And the truth is, most of us are not good at telling stories in the midst of these arguments and fights. So good storytelling, if you can think of people that you know, 
What's, what's the hallmark of a good storyteller? We talked about this in the first time. What does a good storyteller do? Sets the scene. Sets the scene, absolutely. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Sets the scene, what else? Gets your attention. What else might they do? It might be funny, yes. <laughs> it might not be, yes. <laughs> yes, so try jokes in your conflict discussions. See how that works. <laughs> it shows genuine, real interest in what, the first, what they're talking about. Yes, shows genuine, real interest in what they're talking about. They're engaged in the topic that's being put out there. Um, I'll, I'll just throw a couple more out there. What, one of the biggest things is that they're going to match their story to the audience the person that they are speaking to. They need to know, here's, here's what they can hear. If I tell a great story, but it's meant for a group of five-year-olds and I'm talking to my spouse, it doesn't work. Or if I tell this scientific uh, story to the five-year-olds, it doesn't work in that context either. So the real question is, does, does the story that I'm telling, does it, does it match the audience that I'm talking to? If it does, it has a chance of working. If it doesn't, it's not going to work at all. Um, what would be the keys to doing this? I'm going to try to explain this. It may be a little bit, a little bit complicated. Uh, interactional synchrony. Anybody know what that is supposed to mean? I heard this. I was listening to a TED Talk on NPR a few weeks ago, and there was a jazz musician who was talking about uh, jazz. Anybody a jazz fan out there? I don't, I don't know much about it. Right, you probably know a lot more than I do. Not much. Okay. <clears throat> But the idea here is when you're, when you're playing a piece of jazz music, there's an improvisation that's going on. And so I may be sort of the leader of this band, but he says you can't force uh, the band to go in the direction that you want it to go, to say I'm going to just be heavy-handed and steer the musical composition this way. The idea is that you introduce an idea, but you're watching how everybody else responds to it. And if I see what they're doing musically, I, I adapt part of what I'm doing to fit their response, and then they hear what's going on with me and they adapt to fit it. So there's this synchrony that's going on, this organic fluid response where I see what's happening with you and so I adjust myself, and you see what's happening with me, you begin to adjust yourself, so you make some great music. You can think about this in other practical ways. Let's take football. Right? I know no one in the South enjoys football, but I'll use the example. Anyway, so if, if the offense has a set play, but let's say everything is broken down, right? The linemen have gotten in, so the protection is gone, and you've got some Johnny Manziel type scrambling around out there. There's a synchrony that's occurring then. He's got to read what is the defense doing, what are the receivers doing? The receivers also are saying, well, what's happening with the quarterback? You know what, I'm going to break this route off and come back shorter because he needs my help. Or I see that this has happened. Maybe there's a hot route. So even within football, there's a synchrony going on. I see what's happening I'm adjusting to you. If you can adjust to me, we can make this great play. Right? Or from one other angle, if you think about dancing, this is actually one of the greatest metaphors I've heard of marriage, is this dancing metaphor where a man typically leads in a dance, but it doesn't mean that he controls the dance. So if they're dancing and he wants you to spin, he's going to do an initial movement to kind of tell you we're spinning now. Okay, That's him initiating. But then at that point, he's got to be in synchronicity with the female. So as she's spinning, if she's doing a wider spin, he's got to adjust his body to make sure she looks right. Or if she's going in a narrow way, he's got to adjust his body. So 
He's seeing, what is she doing? Let me get myself in line with what she's doing. And her job is to read, what is he trying to initiate? Does he want to spin? Does he want to go backwards, forwards, and respond to that? Okay, beating the dead horse. But in all these, I have to see, where are you? And I respond to that. You see where I am. You respond to that inside of me. Here's what that means in terms of our marital communication, especially within conflict. Someone's giving you a piece of information about what's happening with them. You're the receiver. Sender and receiver. It doesn't matter if I give this great message. You know, in, in my life, being a psychologist, you can imagine how our arguments go at home because my wife's got the trump card of, don't play psychologist with me. I'm not, I'm just trying to talk. But if I do that, I could explain everything that the textbooks and the research say about how we're supposed to have an argument. And she doesn't care, right? Because I haven't met her where she is. If she doesn't speak that language... Now, you could say, well, that was a beautiful message, but it doesn't matter because she's not able to receive it, right? Or she also, at times, may not be tuned into where I am, and then vice versa. So think about that synchronicity. If I know what you need to hear, not in terms of like telling you the things that you want to hear, but here's the way you can hear what I need to say, I can address you in that way. And then as the receiver, if I know how you speak and I'm responding to that, I can have ears to hear what you're trying to say. Let me stop for a second. This is a little complicated. Does this make sense at all? Or Okay. So the first is just having that attitude. I go into the conversation of conflict knowing I'm going to have to adapt to where you are. Am I telling the story in the right way? Am I having ears to hear the story in the right way? Am I responding to what I see in you? You may need something different. Or am I getting belligerent like the jazz musician says not to do and just pounding my story out there going, you're going to get in line with what I'm saying. It's not going to work. Okay, so the first one is interactional synchrony. Engagement and genuineness. Somebody said this a little bit earlier. When I want to have a good conflict discussion, I need to really be genuinely engaged with what's going on and I need to be genuine. Um, three parts of communication. You've got the actual content of what you say. You've got your tone of voice and you've got the body language that you use. All three of those communicate a message. What's most important? What do you think? Body language, that's correct. What's second most important? Tone of voice, which leaves in third place, bringing up the rear, the content of what you say. The content of what you say accounts for 8% of a message. That's it, right? The body language is 55%. I think that leaves 37% for the tone of voice. And you can think about this with animals. So if I have my dog, you know, and I say, oh, come here. Millie is the dog, remember from the, the first time. And I say, oh, come here. I want to smack you across the face. Come over here. The dog will come because my body language and tone of voice is saying, I, I, I love you. I want to engage with you. Right? And if I say, I love you. You're a great dog. Then he's going to run away or she's going to run away. But people go into these conversations saying, I told you I love you. I mean, I, I, you know that I'm always here for you thinking, I don't know what's wrong with my wife. I told her that I loved her and I'm always there for her. The message you communicate is communicated through the tone of voice that you use and the body language that you use. Here's why this is important. It's not to just try to change those things, but your body language is going to tell the truth. It's very hard to manipulate your body language, unless you're probably like a sociopath and you're disconnected, but, which I don't recommend in terms of marital conflict. But... You can change your words and your partner's going to say, I just, I don't believe you. And most of the time it's because they're picking up these cues that say, 
you don't really care about me in this moment. You're just interested in me agreeing with what you say. But if I come in with this interactional synchrony attitude, if I'm saying, I, I, I've got to be in touch with where you are, and I'm genuinely caring about what's happening with you, and I'm engaged with what's happening with you, my body language is going to say that. Right? Now, you can try to fake it, but trust me, the faking it is only going to last for like a sentence or two, and they're going to see through it. <clears throat> Which is why when people walk away frustrated, I don't know, I was saying all the right things. Yes, but your tone of voice, your body language was saying, this is not about you. This is about my frustration. This is about my anger. And you need to change. Okay? So you have to be authentic. If you don't care where they're coming from, there's no point in having the conversation. Okay? And if you don't have the conversation, all the stuff builds up and it's not good. But it's that big of a deal. If I'm not genuine and if I'm not engaged with where you are, it's going to go nowhere. Okay? All right. Uh, for the third one, probably the biggest problem I see when I'm working on conflict and communication with couples, uh, what do you think it is? Biggest problem in communication with couples? Everybody's right. Who's right and who's wrong? Okay, everybody's right. I'll throw can't it. See the, can't see the big goal of where they're trying to get. Absolutely. Yeah, these are all good. It's a leading question, not fair on my part. I'll tell you what I was going to say. Those are all exactly right. And because of those, you stop listening. Right? You start saying something, and I'm thinking, you know what? You've said this before. I already know what you're about to say. I don't even listen anymore. I'm already thinking of, here's the response that I need to say to correct you and enlighten you as to what the real issue is. So let me start thinking about that instead of slowing down and listening to what's really going on. Now, the truth is you probably do know 90%, maybe even 95% of what they're going to say, but you've, you've shut them down, okay? And there's no listening, then you're missing the next thing here, which is understanding and empathy, okay? I cannot understand you if I don't listen well to hear what you're really trying to communicate. This is the primary goal of communication, the primary way to get yourself through a conflict. Do I understand where you're coming from? Okay. So if I shut down and I don't listen well, I can't do that. Uh, fourth one, safety and clarity. Right? If, if I really want to know what's going on, I have to create an environment that's safe. And there's lots of things that can make it unsafe. I use what you say against you later on in a conversation. So you've been vulnerable, opened up. And the next day, well, you told me that you're not good at this and that you have insecurities, so you just need to get over them. Now I've made it a place that says, if you share with me, I'm going to wound you later. So it's not safe to be honest. It's not safe to really go to those real places. Or if there's a lack of clarity with what's being described, you walk away with that confused uh, feeling and you think there's no point to this. Okay? And there's one other one I'm going to point out here, which is humility. Kind of goes back to, I think, uh, the point from the back before of, you know, there may be things in my life that get in the way. What if my pride is getting in the way? I don't really want to see what my role is in this. Maybe with my own insecurities, it's not okay to be wrong about something. Or I'm so sensitive in this area. If you challenge me on it, I'm just going to get defensive and come back at you. So I don't have the humility to hear what you have to say. Okay, so th these would be the five things that I would say are crucial. Interactional synchrony. I see what's going on with you, I adapt myself. The other person sees what's going on to me, they try to adapt, right? So we're working as a team with this. The second one, 
I really do care about what's going on with you. I'm engaged. And genuinely, I'm going to demonstrate that with you. Right? The body language will betray that. Understanding and empathy. Understanding is the primary way to make effective communication happen. Am I trying to understand you or am I trying to get you to understand me? Safety and clarity. I've made this an okay place for us to share and be vulnerable and we've been clear. And then humility. Okay. Does this make sense? Let me um, <clears throat> beat the dead horse one more time. So if I were telling you a story, listen to this story and tell me if it's a good story. You ready? Ready, ready? I'd like to hear your responses. Here's a story. A guy wins a boxing match. Good story? You like it? I mean, what story are we talking about here? Are we talking about Rocky, right? The poor Philadelphia guy who kind of fights his way, finds love. You know, it's his epic struggle. Oh, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good story. Are we talking about that? Or are we talking about Mike Tyson, you know, beating people up in 90 seconds and then the, the fight's over and you wondered why you pay-per-viewed it? Are we talking about Cinderella Man, the story of James Braddock in the Depression, who basically was this washed-up fighter, couldn't feed his family, trying to make his way through, he wins a boxing match. That means something completely different. Or maybe it's a Vander Holyfield getting his ear bit off in the middle of a boxing match. The context makes all the difference. Or another example, if the story is a guy travels through time. Okay, what is this, right? Is this Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? You know, Keanu Reeves back in the early days, a silly comedy. Or is it Somewhere in Time? Anybody ever seen that movie, Somewhere in Time? I see a few people nodding their heads. Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour, I believe, where he falls in love with this picture of this uh, actress from the turn of the century, and he finds this little penny and, or something. He meditates on it, and he travels back in time and falls in love, and then he finds the penny and realizes he's in the present and he can't get back. It's real sad, but... <laughs> this is me genu- uh, genuinely showing my empathy and understanding. Here's the point. The context makes all the difference. Remember we talked about uh, good storytelling and you said that they set the stage. They set the stage. So you're asking, what's the stage that my, my partner is, is using right now? Right? If I understand, okay, my wife's coming to me and she's had a very stressful day because this has happened with her mother. And then here's what's happened with our daughter. And then this work friend had this issue. So she's coming to me and wants to bring something up, and I'm responding negatively. I've missed the context of what's going on. If I understand her context, I can have more empathy. I can validate what she's doing. But if I miss the context, it's gone. I'm just going to beat this up one more time, then we're going to move on. Here's the problem. Take note of this. Most times in a conflict conversation, I am trying to make you understand my context. And I'm missing yours. There's one thing you need to try to do in your conflicts Say, my goal is to understand the context you're coming from. That's it. I, I would challenge you. Try to do that in the next argument that you have. I've got to understand my partner's context. Where is this coming from from them? And see if it doesn't go well. Right? If I try to force my context onto you, I've dismissed where you're coming from. But if you have two people trying to understand the other person's context, it'll go somewhere. Right? Let me keep moving for the time. All right, what's going to get away, get in the way of a good conflict conversation? Filters. Um, you guys good? Okay. The filters, right? These are things that are going to keep your attention somewhere else. So I'm just going to list them. I don't have time to go through all these this morning. 
inattention, right? I'm distracted by something else. I'm in a bad emotional state where I can't really engage in this well. I have beliefs about how this is supposed to go and you're not lining up with what my belief system is. We have stylistic differences in the way that we discuss things and I'm letting that interfere. A big one, self-protection. We will talk about this next week, getting into the individual stuff. I'm guarded, so I can't have a good talk with you. And then sin and selfishness. Okay, These will get in the way. That's the filters. The four horsemen I mentioned to you all briefly last week. This is that guy, John Gottman, out in Washington State who studies issues with marriages. Again, I'll just quickly go through them. The number one is criticism. Right? And criticism is the way of saying, the problem is you. Something is wrong with you. Right? Second one is contempt. So not only is the problem with you, but it's just a characterological piece of you. You're just a disorganized person. You are just a me. You're just not generous. You're just not giving. You're just inherently selfish to the core. I'm viewing you in this way. There's no way out for you. I've already labeled who you are, and now I'm judging you. I've got resentment towards you. Okay, so the first one is, there's something wrong with you. Contempt, that's criticism. The contempt is, that's something that's wrong with you. It's not going to change. It's just who you are. The third one is defensiveness. I'm not going to let you speak into my life and tell me what might be wrong with me. So here it is. It's not me, right? It's not me. It's you, right? There's nothing wrong with me. You can't tell me there's something wrong with me. And then stonewalling, right? I'm not even going to go there with you anymore, okay? So these obstacles, these are the ones, remember back to that divorce prediction. If you have these going on, then this predicts that within 94%, you're going to be divorced within five and a half years, right? So these are the ones, check it and go, gosh, am I doing that? Now, men tend to do a lot of defensiveness, so don't say, well, I was defensive. We're going to get divorced next year. It's not that, that immediate, but if you have that going on, it's going to interfere, okay? So we've got those. We've got lack of clarity, and we've got the assumptions. I'm just going to blow through those. Okay, uh, I already said those. I did not mean for that to do that. <laughs> it's burning. I'm on fire. Okay, I, I want to offer you, I know we've only got like 10 minutes or even less left. Here are a couple of practical steps you can use. This first one is really important. This would be the one I would say, if you can get this idea into your head, this will, this will take you miles. Uh, baseball fans out there? Baseball fans? Yeah, Stephen, you're a baseball fan, right? So a, a pretty good batting average in baseball is, is what? 300. 300, right? Okay, 300. That's a, good, that's a good batting average in baseball. Here's what it means in terms of your conflicts. Again, this guy, John Gottman, who's done all this research on marriage, he says... There's two types of problems. There are solvable problems, and then the pretty word is perpetual issues. The other way to say it is an unsolvable problem. And he says that he's done his research. What percentage of our marital problems are unsolvable, would you guess? Anybody know? 69%. Wow, yeah, it's sobering when you think about it. And that doesn't mean that this is a bad thing, but it means you need to reorient how you're looking at this, right? So the getting a hit, wow, we tackled that problem, we got the solution, everything is great. That's going to happen about 31% of the time, or like a, a decent baseball batting average, right? But the vast majority of the time, you're dealing with what's called a perpetual issue. The key is finding out for yourselves 
which one is which. And I'm going to give you just a, a small hint on this. Um, and we'll talk about solving those solvable problems in one second. When you find yourself having the same conversation over and over again, you're probably butting up against an unsolvable problem. Okay? If you find yourself scorekeeping a lot, you might be butting up against an unsolvable problem. If you find the resentment starting to build up because you can't find a solution, you're probably dealing with one of those unsolvable problems. Okay? I'm just going to address this briefly because I know our time is short. We'll probably get back to it next time as well. In a perpetual issue, you've got something where there just may be a difference between y'all. And this is the call to grace. I accept that I've married someone who is fundamentally different than I am. And I'm not going to be able to adapt them and change them to make them what I want them to be. Even if I'm right on the issue, that's not the main point. Even if this person is fundamentally wrong. Now, there are certain things, like talking about drug abuse and different addictions, but that, that's kind of a different category. What we're trying to do here is have a good conversation about it so I can demonstrate grace to you. You can receive grace from me. You can demonstrate grace to me. We talk through these things. We maybe begin to understand each other a little bit, and we feel like we're a team, but we've said, you know what? I see these weaknesses in you. Those are, those are there. I have to accept them. You see these flaws in me. Those are there. You're learning to accept them. So we've got this attitude of grace. That's the perpetual issue solution, which, again, we'll talk about later. The solvable problems... Do I have a slide on this? Yeah. Here's a couple of tips. Number one, everything comes down to the first three minutes of a conversation. If you don't get the first three minutes of a conversation right, you have a less than 4% chance of it ending well. Okay? It's big. And in four minutes, I'll explain all this to you. This is a little side note. Um, there are primary issues that are going on, then there are secondary issues. We have primary emotions and then secondary emotions. We usually come to an argument with the secondary emotions. So, for example, anger. Like, if you, if you ever had one of your kids, you know, about to run into the street into traffic, right? And you're like, no, my gosh! And then you get over there, it's like, I'm going to kill you! Wait, what happened? The primary emotion <laughs> was fear and love and concern for the child. That's what you're really feeling. But then the secondary reaction is, I'm so angry at you because you put me in a place where you could have done great harm to yourself, which would have destroyed me emotionally. So then I come at you, I'm leading with my anger. And when someone leads with anger, then you have defensiveness in response. If I lead with accusation, you have defensiveness. So the deal here is soften the startup, which means, what am I really feeling? Okay, I'm hurt. I'm sad. If I say, you just work all the time, you're a workaholic, you just care about the office more than me, okay, that's one way to approach it. A different way would be, what's the real thing? I, I miss you when you're gone. I really love having you home. I love it when we sit down, have our coffee together, just share and relate. And it's sad for me because I know you have to work, but you're gone all the time. That's a very different startup. Or now a husband or a wife may be able to say, I, I hear that. I miss being with you too. Right? Harsh startup. If it stays that way for three minutes, you're done. Just stop. No point. If you can get it soft within the first three minutes, you can go. Okay. Um, learn to make and receive repair attempts. This is going back to what we talked about before. Even when a conversation starts down the wrong path, look for that moment where someone is trying to offer you a peace flag and say, hey, maybe I did this wrong. Grab it. Right? If you can grab that, 
you can get on the right course. Soothing yourself and your partner. Remember I talked about that diffuse physiological arousal. Think back to the, the, the intro with the video from Talladega Nights. He was so worked up. In that state, you ha can't have a good conversation. Better than to say, let me just step outside for a second, step away, call a timeout, calm myself down so I can re-enter this conversation and actually, and actually hear you. Okay? Soothing yourself <clears throat> and then learning to soothe your partner as well, which we don't have time to discuss right now. Being open to compromise uh, and then being tolerant of each other's faults. I'm going to give you one more because the time's almost up. <clears throat> Some of these we may get to later, but I'm going to talk about this, this thing I call the clarification question. One problem, two minutes and we're done. One problem is that I want to go back through and, like a lawyer, examine exactly what was said. Well, how can you say you, you know, you said this last night. You said these exact words. Tell me what you meant by that. I don't know. You said that you, you care, but I don't understand how you could say that and still care. So I'm getting historical on you. Going back through, like, we're going to dissect this and see what it really means. It's missing the point. People say things in anger. Here's the way to avoid that. Again, going back, I, I, I'm engaged with you. I genuinely care about what's going on with you. I accept that you're flawed. So now I'm going to ask a question like this. Like, hey, I, I just felt in that moment that maybe you were being defensive or you were really angry at me. Did I read that right? I mean, maybe I read that wrong. Tell me, tell me what's really going on with you in this moment, right? Or I was feeling really hurt, like I, I was feeling like I was attacked, but maybe that's not what you're intending to do. So I'm just, at, I mean, tell me what your real thought was. Or after an incident, like, what was your understanding of what just happened with us just then? Oh, well, I was just, oh, okay, I read that wrong. I mean, I felt you were trying to, like, put a jab in on me. And sometimes they'll say, you know what, I was trying to put a jab on you because I was, I was so angry, but this, because you've named it, now we can step back and say, well, maybe we can do something different. So the theme here is, instead of just running with it, just slow down and say, let's clarify, what do you really feel? What's really going on for you in this moment? All right, let me stop and pray there. Uh, you know, we're just halfway through this. We may come back to some of this next time as we go to the next step too. Let me pray for us real quick. Uh, God, my primary prayer here would be that you would give us all humility as we talk with each other, as we deal with both the solvable and the unsolvable, the perpetual issues that are there in our marriages, that we would have grace and humility in approaching each other. Now, help us to do this well. Yes, there is growth, even though it does scare us. Uh, but mostly, going back to the theme that we see through all this, you've created us for a relationship with you, relationship with each other. Let our conflict be something that draws us closer to each other and not pull us apart. In Christ's name, amen.